All right, friends, pray with me now as we hear from God's Word. Father God, I pray that you would be near all of us during this hard time, speaking to us from your Word. I pray that you would be with all of us, though we are sinners, as we sit under its authority, and be with me, though I am a sinner, as I proclaim it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this week we are jumping back into the book of Revelation, which we have been preaching through for a while now. But as we dive in, I want to acknowledge the hardness of the last week for many of us. It is hard, first of all, for us to gather as a church like this. While we are gathering, I miss seeing you guys, and I know that many of you really miss each other. And what's more, there's a lot of other hard stuff that I know some of us are facing. Some of you are already lonely as you feel stuck at home. Others are anxious about your job or income. And on top of that, there's this disease (laughs) epidemic itself. We don't know how it will develop in the next months, whether it will be contained or explode and cause a crisis in our nation. And so here's what I want us to do. In this passage from Revelation, we are given these three pictures, these three interwoven images, and each of them is meant by John to be an image of hope for the people of God. We see a judgment and a wedding and a song. And so we're just going to look at each of those images and try to feel it in our current lives. First, we have a judgment. God brings judgment on the sinful systems of this world. In chapter 17 and 18, if you've been with us as we've been preaching through Revelation, we had this image of Babylon, this image of worldly power that leads people into idolatry and corrupts them with luxury and oppresses the poor. And in chapter 18, Babylon was judged and we saw her fall. And now at the beginning of 19, John picks up with the saints celebrating that fact. If you read verse 1. We see this great multitude, which represents the church, and they sing, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with their immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The heart of that song is the idea that justice will come, that justice is going to come. The saints sing because God comes in salvation and glory and power. Salvation in the Bible is sometimes used to talk about our individual salvation from sin and our guilt, and then at other times it is used to talk about God rescuing us from the brokenness and evil of this world. And here it has that second sense, that salvation is coming because Babylon, who is oppressing and persecuting the saints and the downtrodden, who is enslaving people and exploiting the world, God's judgment has come and she has been defeated. So this is a proclamation that even though right now in the world we see these evil powers at work, justice is going to come for them in the end. And that justice is going to endure as well. It will endure. In verse 3, they cry out again, Alleluia, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Babylon is pictured as this destroyed city. She's reduced to rubble, and her smoke will continue to heaven forever, meaning she'll never be rebuilt or have her power again. This is not a temporary justice we're talking about. It isn't just that occasionally in history God makes things turn out right. This is the triumph of the Lord over evil, a final reckoning after which justice will be restored. Now, God's judgment is a complicated topic. 
And I know some of you might not have been with us for our Revelation series up to this point, and I would encourage you to go back as several times we've had to address that in past sermons. What I want to suggest in just a minute is that in terms of how we feel about the world right now, it is actually a very hopeful truth. But before we do that, I want to talk about a question that some of us have when we hear about those ideas of judgment. I am already seeing pop up online the idea that this disease that our country and our world is facing is a judgment of God and God is judging our world. And so it's maybe worth asking first, before we apply this in a more hopeful way, is that the case? Now, the answer is actually yes, but not in the way that I think most of those people talking about it online mean. Creation is under judgment because of human sin in Scripture. When we rebelled against our Creator, we waged war against heaven for thousands of years, and there is collateral damage. There are consequences. The world is broken because of that war. God is against us, in a sense, because of that war. And so things like disease and death are results of that war against heaven. And in that sense, it is true that this coronavirus and every disease and broken part of our world is a sign that this world is under judgment. However, and this is crucial, the Bible views that as true of sin in general, not as usually coming as a specific judgment on a specific group of people's sins. Jesus makes this explicit in Luke 13. He's asked about this disaster, this tower that collapses, and the idea seems to be that they have this idea that, well, those people died in the tower collapse, so they must have done something really bad that God is judging them for. And Jesus says this. He says, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Whenever we see judgment in our world, in history, that should be our attitude. Rather than saying, oh, look, it's those people, that, that other group out there and their sins that are causing this, we should see it and examine our hearts and turn from our idols and repent of in our own, our own sins. Because whenever judgment is coming, it's meant to be a reminder that judgment is what all of us deserve. <clears throat> that said, it isn't that idea of judgment for sin that I want us to focus on when we think about our current circumstances. Instead, it's this. That truth of God's judgment coming, it's on not just individual people, but it is on the sinful systems of the world itself. In a, in a mysterious but real way in Scripture, God's judgment is pictured as coming in a way that destroys the judgment that we experience in this age. In the next chapter of Revelation, we see the final judgment, the lake of fire, and we see Satan and the beast and those who follow them cast into it. But then we also see this. It says, Then death and Hades, which means the grave, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So death is a judgment brought against us for our sin, and that is manifested in all these things like disease and cancer and all the different tragedies of our world, but it is also under judgment and is being destroyed. One of the implications of God's judgment in scripture is that everything that is wrong with the world will have an end. Justice is not just coming for a few bad people. Justice will come to the whole earth. Justice will reign because everything opposed to God's justice will be removed. And that is not today. Right now, we groan and long for that. But there is much peace in being reminded of the truth 
that this present suffering is going to have an end. Disease is a temporary affliction. Human evil is a temporary affliction. Mortality is a temporary affliction. They all have an expiration date. And when Jesus returns, all of it will be judged and cast out. And we will cry, Alleluia. So let that be an encouragement to you this week. We are in a season where we feel the brokenness of the world, where we suffer under it. But be reminded that this brokenness, this disease... And all other afflictions that come will not have the last word. God will, in the end, vanquish all of them. So that's the first image of judgment. And then joined to that is an image of a wedding. A wedding. For this to make sense, we need to back up. John is painting this image with the colors of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, repeatedly, we get this idea that God is like a husband and his people are like a bride. Take this from the prophet Isaiah. He says, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And then in the New Testament, we get that same kind of imagery. Here's the Apostle Paul. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. God is not just a king that makes us his subjects. He isn't just a father who makes us his children. He is also a husband, and he is marrying us, binding himself to us in love, and delighting in us the way a young man delights in his bride. It's out of that image, then, that John hears this in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. If God has always been the husband, our age is pictured like an engagement, a betrothal. At the end of the story, the engagement comes to an end, and the wedding happens, and it is a time for celebration. And that celebration is spoken of as the wedding supper of the Lamb. Verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, we still have wedding receptions in our world, and they're cool. I like wedding receptions. I like to dance and stuff. But in the ancient world, they make what we do look pretty lame. They would have these feasts for days where food was plentiful and drink flowed, and it was a party that went on from morning to night, and then the next morning you'd wake up and it would start up again. Jesus was invited to one of those feasts in John chapter 2, where he turns the water into wine, which is really an anticipation of this wedding feast to come. But at the end of this thing, There isn't just judgment on evil. There's also a party, a great celebration of love that will echo onward into the aeons of eternity. But there's still something specific we need to notice about that too. If you read in verse 8, it says that it was granted her, meaning the church, the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now notice there's two parts of that. One is that the finery of the church is our righteousness. Our calling to follow Jesus is a call in a sense to get ready for the wedding day. But at the same time, notice that that is a granted righteousness. The word for granted is the word for to give, like a gift. This righteousness, this wedding dress, is something that God has given us. John is reminding us here of the gospel. When we talk about the church as the bride of Christ, that is not actually an image of how awesome the church is. It isn't that Jesus is like out cruising and then he sees, you know, these people and he's like, 
whoa, like they're, they're hot. That's not what it's saying. Instead, the idea is of God's great love. He understands perfectly just how sinful and selfish and faithless and idolatrous we are, and he chooses to marry us anyway, and he makes this purity, this pure dress for us to wear. He's working in us and helping us to grow into that righteousness, and one day we will appear before him in splendor, and that righteousness will truly be in us as well, and Jesus will marry us forever. One of the things we wrestle with as Christians is the gap between what we just said about God marrying us in love and what we feel in the present, especially in seasons like this one. He can feel distant and we can feel uncertain. What do we do with that? Well, here's my question. Do you remember what it was like to be engaged? It's been 12 years since Elizabeth and I got married, which is not as long as it is for some of you, longer than a few of you, but I remember on the whole, engagement was kind of beautiful, but also miserable. I mean, it was sweet, right? We wanted to get married and we had taken this step and Elizabeth was showing off her ring and stuff like that. But engagement was also miserable, in part because of all the practical considerations. I mean, if you like planning a wedding, congratulations, but I think most people find that process kind of stressful and there's deadlines and fights and decisions. But more than that, engagement is miserable because of the anticipation for what is to come. I want to be married to this person. We have decided to get married, but we are not married yet. And if we are living obediently in this season, then we are living in a way that reflects the fact that we're not married yet. And so what happens then is you feel stuck in this place where you aren't where you want to be, but you also um, need to be in this place. And that is kind of the image that scripture uses for this age as the church. Jesus is the bridegroom, and he has promised himself to us. It's not a thing in our culture where he's paid the bride price, the betrothal price for us, and we're sealed in that, but we are still waiting for the wedding. We are in the in-between. I know some people think that old stuffy theologians are all old and stuffy, and sometimes that is true, but they had a word to describe what happens when Jesus returns, and the word they used to describe it was consummation consummation, which is the word that they would use to describe what happens on a wedding night, what's supposed to happen when this bride and groom are made one flesh. That is how they tried to get us to think about what happens when Jesus returns. Here's why we need that truth of the wedding feast of the Lamb. There are blessings in this age in Jesus, and it is good to belong to him and be loved by him, but it is incomplete. And if we lose sight of that incompleteness, we actually lose our ability to faithfully live as Christians. Practically, what we need to do is practice imagining and anticipating glory, even in the present brokenness of the world. Imagining and anticipating glory. When we face difficulties in this life, when we suffer and struggle, there are two ways we can try to solve that. One way is to try to minimize those difficulties. I feel like that's the worldly solution and the solution a lot of Christians actually take. Um, and there's two issues with that. One is that sometimes you can't minimize your difficulties. Sometimes it is just really bad. And two is that that is not actually scripture's approach. Scripture, instead of minimizing our suffering in this age, what scripture seeks to do is maximize our hope and particularly our hope in the age to come. It maximizes the glory. There is this great cosmic party at the end of this thing, a wedding feast, 
a consummation, joy and life and growth and intimacy with God and a healing for all our wounds and purpose and restoration that will go on forever, world without end. And that actually allows us to be honest about our suffering in the present. It allows us to confront the realities that this world is really broken and really hard things can happen because it's that vision, that maximal glory, that is what gives us the strength to endure. So we have a judgment and a wedding. And then last, we have a song, really a series of songs that form the backbone of this passage. We already saw a couple of them in verses 1 and 3. In verse 4, we see it pick up again. It says the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And then they're commanded to sing again in verse five. From the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. The one on the throne is God himself. And so God is also saying, yes, it is right for you to sing Alleluia and praise me. And in verse 6, again, the great multitude cries out. It says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. So here's my question. What is with all that singing? I mean, it's all through the book of Revelation, not just in this chapter. These people singing songs. Well, first we should say, all the singing that's happening, it is symbolic. There is this idea that some people have that the age to come is literally like a 24-7, 365 concert where all that we do is play harps until our fingers are numb and sing until our voices are hoarse. And that is not literally Scripture's picture of heaven. It's a symbolic picture of heaven. And we know that because there are other pictures of heaven that include us doing things like building houses and planting fields and conducting commerce in the new heavens and new earth. So that song is symbolic. But what does it symbolize? What it represents is what life is meant to look like when we are living it, worshiping God. Throughout Revelation, we learn about our worship problem. The issue is not simply that we do bad things. It is that we worship the wrong things. We worship the beast, Babylon, the dragon. We worship idols and ourselves instead of the living God. And even here in our reading, this little worship problem crops up in verse 10. It says that John fell down at his feet to worship him, him being an angel, not the Lord. But the angel says to John, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brother who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Even this angel is pointing out the worship problem. What is worship? Have you ever thought about that? In English, the word literally means worth-ship, to acknowledge the worth of something. So we say this thing is valuable and worthy and good. In Greek, the word literally means to bow down and kiss someone's feet which is not a thing that we're used to happening. But when you think about that action, what it shows is a humbling of myself and an exalting of the person that I'm doing it to. It is about acknowledging that I am humble and acknowledging that this other being is greater than me. Worship is not, therefore, some specific thing we do. It isn't just songs we sing. It's not even just a gathering that we have. Instead, it is a posture of the heart a posture of the heart that humbles ourselves and exalts God, that says you are infinitely great, you are infinitely worthy, and everything else 
is as nothing next to you. I am as nothing before you. A posture of the heart that humbles ourselves and exalts God. That is a posture that we are called to take in every aspect of our lives. You've probably heard, if you've been around the church, the idea that all of life is worship. And this is what that statement means. Each of our choices, each of our actions, each of our prayers, each moment we are called to be an instrument showing forth God's praise. We adopt a heart posture of humility and of exalting God as worthy, and then we act out of that posture. And the reason that singing is so often the image scripture uses of that is because that's really the image that we're called to have for our whole lives, that our whole lives are meant to be this song of worship. When you care for your kids, when you love your spouse, when you work on your home, when you help a neighbor, when you call a friend, when you spend time with Jesus, each of those things is a note and together they are meant to form a song of praise to God. And friends, the good news is that that is a song that we can be performing just as much now as at any other points in our lives. We might feel disconnected from each other. We might feel anxious about the future. We might feel disconnected from our jobs. And there's there's all these ways that we might feel cut off, but you still live before the Lord and the faithful actions that you undertake today the duties that he has given you today, can still be lifting up that song of praise to him, even if nobody else here on earth can hear it. All right, I can draw all of that together. Let me just close again by reflecting on this moment that we find ourselves in. One of the great advantages of this moment, I think, is that it is stripping away a lot of our illusions. Where does our hope truly rest? Is it in our activities, in our performance, in our jobs, in our ability to manage the future? Man, the future (laughs) feels out of our control right now, but really it's always out of our control. And this is just a time that we are being reminded of that. Is our hope in those things, or is it in the coming of the Lord and the justice that he brings? What's the joy we are seeking, right? What is the, the, the joy that we're trying to get? Is it some earthly joy? Is it the activities with which we fill our days? Those things are not available to us right now either. We are left without our usual distractions. So is our joy in those things? Or is it in the communion with our Father and the wedding feast to come with Jesus Christ that we have been promised? Is that the thing that our hearts thrill at the thought at? What are we living our lives for? Is it some earthly idol? Some part of this age? We can't chase a lot of those things right now. I feel like idols are just getting kicked over right and left in our world. Is it that, or is the thing we are living for the Lord? Because he can be praised and served just as much from your home. He can be worshipped just as much as you're sitting with your family on your couch right now in your living room in front of a screen just as easily as when you gather with his people. What I want you to do is to take this week as an opportunity to reflect on those questions and those three pictures and let them sink into your heart. Let them maybe expose some of the issues in our hearts. And let's then fix ourselves on those images and seek to be drawn to life in Christ. Friends, we are now going to turn to a time of prayer. I would invite you to pray with me. At the end of this, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And the words will be up on your screen if you do not know them by heart. 
Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning as a people scattered in space, but united in heart and spirit. We remember that we are joined with the saints in glory right now. We are joined with one another. We are joined with our fellow Christians who come to you from all around the world, many of them in hard places. We all come before you as the God who hears our prayers. Father, we pray this morning for the broken areas of our world. We pray for those afflicted with the spread of this new virus, COVID-19, especially for those close to death. We pray that you would work healing and contain its spread and help us be a part of that work. We especially pray for those working on the front lines, medical professionals and others, that you would keep them safe in their important labor. We pray for the leaders of our nation and of other nations as they make complicated, difficult decisions. Give them wisdom and insight. Guide them in your will. Make us prayerful for them and respectful of them and faithful as we all seek to work for the common good. We also pray for those hit by the current changes in our country and economy. We pray for the poor, for those in prison, for those otherwise lacking basic necessities. We pray for those who are losing jobs. We pray for business owners and managers making hard decisions for all of these and for each of us. Give us our daily bread. Encourage us that you know our needs and so we can freely ask them. Father, we pray for your church. Build us up in faith in this season. Let us be ruled not by anxiety or distraction, but by your truth and love. Let this be an opportunity for us to love and care for our neighbors. Give us peace. We especially think of those churches who are already struggling under financial burdens, under unfaithful leadership, or in parts of the world where the church faces persecution. We know this will be an especially difficult season for them. We pray that you would be with them and with us. Fix us, fix our hearts on the hope we have in you. Wet our appetites for the wedding supper of the Lamb. Join our lives in a symphony of praise to your name, working for your glory and finding joy in you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray as he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.